please open with me at Luke 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here, we have a table at the back with Bibles. You're welcome to take one to use for the service. Uh, so Luke 8, verses 26 to 39. Let's read together. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, they met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned." The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So, as you know, we are busy with a series on spiritual warfare and spiritual beings. And as Johan mentioned also last week, this is, I think for most of us, at least for us in our Western mindset, it's often a very um, uncomfortable thing. We might be a bit uncomfortable with the, the whole idea of a spiritual realm, um, a whole realm of beings that we cannot see, that's invisible and that has an influence on our material world and the world that we can see. I, I remember when I was a little girl, I, um, you know, growing up in South Africa, I used to be quite afraid, um, especially at night, in my bed, and I used, used to pray uh, for God to send his angels to stand around our house, you know, just send all your angels and guard our house this evening so that we might, you know, wake up safe tomorrow morning. And later on, I grew quite embarrassed with that prayer. It was still kind of my default when I'm afraid, but I was like, this is a bit, you know, strange um, that I'm praying for, for angels to guard my house. Um, and even at some stage, I felt like I was kind of stealing glory from God in a way or um, 
kind of implying that he's not strong enough to protect me, you know? Why, why do I need his angels um, if he's God? And um, so I went through this whole, you know, thought process of what this, this means. But um, the, you know, the reality is that in, in Hebrews, God says uh, the, the angels are ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. Um, so clearly my, you know, girlish prayer wasn't that strange. Now, last week Johan set the scene for this uh, series by talking about the devil. And next week we will continue by talking about angels. Now, the devil, demons, and angels, we can't really uh, separate them from each other. We need to be, you know, of the same mind frame when we think about them, or at least consider them in the same conversation. Um, because ultimately angels are what demons used to be, and the devil is the prince of the demons. That's what he is called um, in Matthew and some other uh, scripture references as well. So obviously angels and the devil and demons, they all have something in common. Now, um, reading up about this, it was um, quite interesting because there are theologians who... um, put in a lot of hours and write books called systematic theology, in which they systematically try to go through all of the doctrines of Christianity. Um, so it's, it's not a chronological thing or, or biblical, like taking the biblical books, it's systematic. They take themes and they uh, look at the lines throughout the Bible. And most of them kind of struggle with the whole theme of demons and angels, or they just omit it. They don't really spend a lot of time on this. Um, And one of the systematics I I read said the following. Angels and demons are in some ways the most unusual and puzzling of all of theology. One reason is that while there are abundant references to angels and demons in the Bible, they are not very helpful for developing an understanding of angels and demons. Every reference to angels is incidental to some other topic. They are not treated in themselves. When they are mentioned, it is always in order to inform us further about God, about what God does and about how he does it. This is not surprising if we think about the word angel. Uh, In both the Greek and the Hebrew, the word means messenger. They are, in principle, messengers of God. Now, the whole topic of angels and demons and the spiritual realm has always been this kind of swinging pendulum throughout the ages. It's been either, you know, we are completely obsessed with it um, or we completely disregard it and don't really spend a lot of time or thought to it and or even think that it, it doesn't really exist um, as an entity. So, Johan also mentioned, um, C.S. Lewis said, we are either superstitious or substitious or if we have any office fans in Michael Scott's word, we, we are not superstitious, but we are a little stitious. So there's this, this pendulum, and that same theologian, Erickson, writes about that. At times there's been a virtual preoccupation with the doctrine of angels and demons and speculation of the wildest sort regarding their nature and activities. At other times, again, belief in angels has been regarded as a relic of a pre-scientific and uncritical way of thinking. 
yet potential mishandling should not deter us from dealing with a topic of genuine importance. So the thing is, the fact of the matter and the reality that we cannot get around is that in the Bible, there are more than 300 references to the spiritual realm or I think only the, um, where I got that reference, only the demonic actually, 300 plus references only to the demonic, whether in the form of um, the word Satan or devil or spiritual forces or the God of this age or demons, um, they're all different terminology, but the, the fact is that it is something that really pops up a lot in the Bible. The conflict starts right at the beginning in Genesis 1, and it, it goes right through to the end of, of Revelation. The, the, the thing is, there is a war going on, and it's not the one in the Ukraine. It's a spiritual war that's been going on since the fall. So obviously, this is something that we need to reckon with if we want to call ourselves serious students of the Bible or serious Christians. So the question is then, if we don't have a lot of information um, on angels and demons and so on, what, what do we know about them? What is there that can be known? Now one thing is that they were created by God. When this happened exactly, we, we don't know. Probably before the fall of man, um, because Adam and Eve were tempted um, by the devil. So before that, sometime they were created and they, or some of them, the demons at least, fell. What we can also know is that they are spirits. They don't have corporal bodies, yet sometimes they do manifest bodily um, and then they can be super strong, like we see in the text, the man breaking the chains and the shackles, but they are not omnipotent and they do possess knowledge. Um, they, they were created with a free will. They do possess knowledge, but they are not omniscient like God. We also know uh, that they don't die, but they are finite because they were created. So they weren't, you know, from eternity to eternity like God. They were created at some stage, but they are, so they are finite, but they don't die. Um, and we also know that there are many of them. So in many places in the Bible, it talks about legions, also in our text, and thousands upon thousands, and, you know, terms like, like those. We know that there are many angels and, and demons. We know that they have intelligence and will. And we know that they are personal beings. Now, this is very important to us because in... I mean, if you just think about maybe what you believe or people that you've spoken to, very few people will deny the reality of evil in our world. You know, most people will say, yes, there's some kind of, you know, there are things that are not good and in that sense is, is evil. But many people don't believe in the personal force. So we tend to depersonalize demons, to depersonalize evil. We might see evil as part of the structure of reality, of maybe part of our present social reality that we live in, or we might see the origin and the nature of demons um, as nothingness or chaos or darkness. Um, something that wasn't per se created 
as, as a, a being, but rather just a void, just something that's lacking something. So if you think of a pothole, a pothole isn't really something, it's just the lack of road. Um, where there's supposed to be road. So we think about evil in that sense. It's just, it's just this void of goodness. But the Bible tells a different story. When we read about evil, about the devil and about demons um, and angels, we read that they are moral creatures. Some of them are described as holy, the angels. And others have fallen away and are described as lying and sinning. They are moral creatures with a free will. So at some stage in history, after their creation, before our fall, um, probably, the devil rebelled against God, and some of the angels rebelled with him. And there was, it seems from Revelation, that there was some kind of a battle in heaven uh, between the angels and the demons, and that the demons were cast out of heaven. Now, the, the Bible makes it clear that now there is a serious and intense war going on on earth between Christ and his church and the demons. So the first war was in heaven between the, the angels and the demons, and the demons were cast out. And now the demons are on earth trying to, um, to steal Christians away, to steal God's church, Christ's church away from him. So instead of being the messengers that they were created to be, they are now doing everything in their power to thwart God's message to humankind. They truly hate God. Anything that smells God-like, you know, um, anything that's noble or pure or beautiful or joyful or peaceful um, or, or humble or gentle or self-sacrificing is just absolutely abominable to them. Now, if we think about the theology of man, man, were, man was created in the image of God. So when the demons see man, they see their enemy, they see God, they see the living embodiment of the one that they rebelled against. It makes sense that they completely hate humans and completely want to, you know, destroy and corrupt everything godlike in us. So they can, um, as we read in the Bible, they can cause diseases, but most particularly, and we shouldn't miss this, is that they oppose the spiritual progress of God's people. That's their main modus operandi, but they do have other ways as well, causing diseases and so on. From the beginning, from the fall of the angels, from this rebellion, Satan wanted to sit on the throne of God. He wanted to be God. Now, the only other place, or not the only, but the other place in the universe where there is a throne where God can sit on is our hearts. Once we declare him uh, Lord over our lives, he becomes our, our Lord, our master, the one who sits on the throne of our lives and our hearts. So when they can inhabit people, I mean, they just love that because it's a pure mocking to God, saying, you want to sit on this throne, but here we are possessing this person. Now, there's an important distinction that we have to make between the evil spirits and the Holy Spirit. 
And that is that darkness or evil, the evil beings, cannot create in any way. They cannot procreate, they cannot create, do anything productive, produce anything. You know, those people, um, and I really try to not be one of them, that always just gives a critique or moans about something, but just never comes with anything productive to the table or any ideas of how we can improve, you know, the situation or the thing. They just, you know, tell you everything that's wrong and leave it there. I mean, the demons are like that just in an extreme sense. Um, they're not really, you know, bringing anything to the table. They're just taking everything that's good and corrupts it and destroys it and breaks it down. So the darkness or the evil forces are in principle unfruitful. They are barren. It's only the, that they corrupt that which is already there. Um, now when I thought about this, the, uh, the verse that immediately popped up was uh, Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruit of the spirit, you know, the fruit, something that gets produced um, from the spirit that's in us. The fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and so on. And I thought, but doesn't it say just a few verses before that, you know, the fruit of the, um, of, of the flesh is this and this and this. And I had to go and check Galatians 5. It says the works of the flesh. It doesn't say the fruit of the, fruit of the flesh. It says the works of the flesh. So uh, Paul was really convinced that uh, the spirits are not fruitful in any way, uh, or they cannot produce anything. We also see it in Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 11, where it says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So whereas light can be fruit, darkness is completely barren. It just distorts and corrupts what is. So another question that we might ask is, are all things that are not from God or not in the kingdom of light, are all those things then demonic? And I'd argue that the answer is yes and no. It's no because there's also our sinful nature. We are not complete victims of the, the dark spiritual forces. You know, if I make a bad decision or if I sin, I cannot, you know, just say, oh, sorry, I was tempted and, you know, it's, it's the demon's fault. I'm, because of my sinful nature, I'm still responsible for that decision. But in another sense, the answer might be yes, because, well, everything that isn't of the kingdom of light must be from the kingdom of heaven, or I mean the kingdom of darkness. Um, and this is a very kind of offensive teaching in our culture, um, because we believe in some kind of a, a middle ground, or, you know, there's, there can't just be the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, you know, there, there must be some... Um, neutral ground or something, but the reality is that every human being on earth is possessed, is in the ownership of either God or of Satan, possessed by the kingdom of darkness. 
And when I w use the word possessed here, I truly mean ownership. Like who's the Lord of that person? Is it God or is it, um, is it Satan? We'll come now to possessed in the sense that we read of in this text. Now, this, is, the, this reality is true because we are all born in sin. We are all born as slaves to the forces of evil. But by believing in our hearts and declaring with our minds that Jesus is Lord, we give our ownership over from Satan to Jesus. Now, does this mean that we will never, after we've given this ownership over, does this mean that we will never again be affected by the demonic forces or maybe even be possessed in, in the sense that we read here or inhabited by, um, by, by demons? And here I, I found a very helpful example, and that is if you think about ownership of a house. So say you go and you purchase um, a house or an apartment and it's yours. You're, you know, you are the owner. Your stamp is on that paper. You're the owner of this place. But there's a hole in the, in the fence and your windows are open and squatters move into your house. And they inhabit the house and they break things and use things and do things to your house. Um, are they now the owners? Well, no, you're still the owner, but they do have access in some way if you leave a, a hole in your fence and your window's wide open and a footstool for them or a foothold for them to get in, they might still have an influence in some or other way. So the truth is, offensive as it might be, that there really is no middle or neutral ground. There is either, either the, the kingdom of, of God or the kingdom of Satan and we are um, the, the slaves of either of these two kingdoms. So, on this point, having talked about, you know, demons and angels and what we know about them and so on, let's read our text again and see what maybe pops out to us. So, we are in Luke 8, 26 to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this is, uh, it says there, which is opposite the, Galil the, the, the Sea of Galilee. So this was Gentile country. It was not Jewish country anymore, not Jews living there, but Gentiles living there. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. Now in this text, we will see a few things that's quite um, unclean to the Jews. Uh, and this would be the first one, wearing no clothes, being naked in public is, is not acceptable. And um, he had not lived in a house, but amongst tombs. That's the second thing. Tombs were very, very much unclean. Anything um, dead or a corpse uh, was very unclean and to be avoided. Now, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, this is Gentile country. These people don't know the Jewish, I mean, they are kind of neighbors, but then they're not Jews in themselves. They don't really, they might have heard about this, you know, miracle worker doing the rounds, but they don't know Jesus. But this, these demons immediately recognize who this is that's coming um, towards them or that's coming over the lake. And not only do they recognize his identity, Jesus, son of the most high, 
they recognize his authority. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Oh man, the cheek of these demons, like they are the ones tormenting this guy. And they are saying, Jesus, don't torment us. That's very ironic. And that's the other thing about the word possessed. Um, so apparently, there are many words in Greek for ownership, for possession as in the sense of ownership. But the word that's used here um, for, uh, for possession is to torment. It's not, it, it's not ownership, it's to torment, you know, to torment someone. So when the, de the demons say this, we... You know, they immediately identify, see, recognize Jesus. We have to think about their, you know, their, their memories coming up of the last battle they had in heaven um, against the angels in the presence of God and being, um, you know, cast out of heaven. And they completely shudder at Jesus' presence on, on earth. Um, the very person of God, this very enemy of theirs, walking on the face of the earth. I mean, during this time, we see it in the Gospels, the, the spiritual realm just went haywire, like it was spiritual manifestations all over the place, because the son of the Most High, the son of their enemy, was walking on earth, casting them out. Let's continue, verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. These demons are really, you know, um, uh, destroying this man's life. If we, if we just think about the blessings that he might have had in, in the, the kingdom of God, the blessings of righteousness and, and joy and peace, um, the demons are really destroying and corrupting all of that in his life. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Now, Legion was about 3,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, if this is really, you know, um, if this is just an exaggeration or whatever, it, it's clear that it was, you know, really a lot of demons um, present in this guy's body. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, this account, um, this story, is also found in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. And I think it's in Matthew that, it, that there's a phrase added um, at the end of the sentence. It says in Matthew, uh, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss until the appointed time. Now remember, this is before the, the crucifixion and before the resurrection. So it seems like the, um, the demons really knew what was coming or knew, at least had a very you know, accurate suspicion that God in the form of man, the second person of the Trinity, walking on earth and bringing the kingdom of God to earth is not a good thing for this battle that we are in and this war that we are trying to, to wage against his um, his followers, his people. So they, they knew of the abyss that, were, that was created for the devil and his forces. 
continuing at verse 32. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. So that's another very unclean thing, um, just indicating once again that we are definitely not in Jewish territory. Um, the pigs feeding on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Jesus, you know, granted these demons their request to not be sent into the abyss just yet, but to, um, to go into the, the pigs. And then comes the ultimate ending of the demonic. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Just immediate death. Like, it, you know, there's the going to the pigs, and the pigs are dead. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for, for they were seized with great fear. What a strange reaction to this great deed of, um, of healing, uh, that, that they react in this way. They were very, very afraid of Jesus' power. They've known this man, you know, f f since he's been tormented by these demons, and Jesus just arrives on the scene, and gone, you know, gone are the demons, and gone are the pigs as well, and this man is free, he's at his right mind, he's clothed, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, sitting like a disciple at the feet of Jesus. So, Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, that he might go with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus did not permit this man to, to follow him or ask him to follow him. Well, I mean, obviously there was a lot of work to be done among his, his fellow citizens and countrymen because they were now just completely terrified um, of Jesus, and he had to go and, in a sense, minister to them and tell them all these good things that, uh, that Jesus has been doing for him. He became, a, you know, a Gentile missionary, a Gentile disciple, in a way, um, in this Gentile country. So, we definitely see very, very clearly in this text Jesus' authority over the demonic forces, over these evil forces um, that ruled in this man's life. But there's more to this text than just Jesus' authority over the demons. And we find that when we zoom out a little bit and look at the rest of the chapter. So, verse 1 of chapter 8 um, introduces it introduces this mission of Jesus when it says soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And then he tells them, the, he, t he tells the people the parable of the sower, you know, that the seeds will be sown but it will fall on all of, you know, all the different kinds of soil and um, 
indicating that some people will be changed by it and others for a small while, but then fall away again and others just completely um, will, will not listen at all. Um, and then a few verses later, we come to uh, verse 22, where we have the account of Jesus calming the storm. Now, this was, uh, you know, when they were on their way to the, uh, the area where they found the, the demon-possessed man. They are in the boat, and Jesus goes for a nap, and a big storm comes over the sea, and the disciples are completely terrified, and they wake Jesus up, and he calms the storm. So we see the natural forces listening to Jesus. Then Jesus goes into this country of the Gerasenes, and we have this legion of demonic forces begging Jesus to not send them into the abyss, to not give them their, um, their fitting punishment just yet. And he, you know, just by a, a word spoken, they actually, they leave voluntarily, um, this man, because of the, the presence of Jesus. And then in the next um, section, we see Jesus uh, is now back in over the Galilee and in the Jewish territory, and he is um, he's walking. And a man named Jairus um, comes to him and says, "My, you know, my daughter is very ill. Can you please come and, um, you know, just come and see her or come and heal her? Please help." And on the way. Um, Jesus gets interrupted by a woman who's been suffering from uh, blood flow um, for 12 years, and she touched, uh, touches him, and, he, and she becomes um, healed. She, he heals her. And because of you know, this, uh, this encounter, um, Jairus receives some messengers saying, sorry, your daughter didn't make it, she died. And Jesus says, you know, don't worry, let's still go and have a look. And he raises the daughter up from the dead. So, you know, the beginning of the chapter says the, the kingdom proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Then Jesus goes on to show himself as Lord over natural forces, demons, illness, and death. And then he even goes on in he does a very interesting thing in chapter 9 where he sends out his 12 disciples and he gives them the same authority. So um, he, he says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So, firstly, he proved himself Lord over all, the, all of those things, and then he gave the same mission um, and actually the same authority to his disciples, to his followers. Now, it's very interesting that, he, he, you know, that we have these four things, because in a sense that's the, um, the total of everything that was affected or um, all of the aspects of the fall. So in Romans, we read that, you know, creation um, groans uh, for the, for new, I'm paraphrasing completely, but um, the point is 
you know, creation is also longing for the, the sons of God to be revealed, um, for this whole fallen age to come to an end. Creation is also, in a sense, um, clearly affected by the fall. And then the second thing, the demons, um, the whole, you know, genus of demons, species of demons that, that also fell, that was also subject to sin um, and fell. And then the fourth one is illness, um, and that's also because of sin and because of the fall, uh, we are all now subject to different illnesses and corruptions in our bodies. And then the ultimate ending of sin, um, which is death, or the, the, the ultimate wage of, of sin, that is death. And Jesus has authority over all of these things, and he is victorious over all of these things on the cross. Now, this leaves us with the question, so what is it to me? Or what, okay, so what now? <laughs> what, what, does this, um, what influence does this now have on me? So I'm going to, to end off with five, um, five points that you can think about. Um, and five sounds like a lot, so number four is kind of something that I think you're already okay with, you'll see why. And number six, I mean five, yeah, that was four. <laughs> number five is um, something that you can just stop doing. Like, it's very easy, just stop it. And you will see what it is now. But the first thing, the first thing is, I want you to think about your stance on this topic. Where are you at with spiritual beings, with evil? What do you believe about evil? Is it just a void, just a, you know, a, a pothole in the road of goodness? Or is it, is it a personal force to you? Um, and do you see spiritual beings as personal things that are actively trying to oppose your spiritual growth? Are you aware of that fact and do you actually believe it? And then the second thing is to think about your prayer life. Because in the whole of the New Testament, in the Gospels, in Acts, and in the Epistles, always when, uh, when they talk about the spiritual beings and our um, relationship to this very strange realm that we really do not know about and really do not learn a lot about in the Bible in the sense of what it really is and how it works, um, the thing or the way that we uh, engage with this topic is through prayer. The way that we, um, or at least the I think the, the primary or the, the first step in the way that we fight in this battle is through prayer. So prayer is really our lifeline, our connection to this Jesus who has already been victorious over it. So it, it's really very logical to talk to him about how we should fight this battle because, because he has ultimately um, won it already. So... Um, on a very practical note there, we, we do have prayer mornings on Wednesday mornings at 6. It's online at this stage. Um, 
And if, if prayer is something that, that comes difficult to you, like I think it does to most people, I know it's, too, it's difficult for me as well to really pr pray disciplined, um, just join, you know, one of those prayer mornings and, um, and get into the habit of praying and, and hear how other people pray and, um, yeah, join that fellowship. So that, that's the second thing. Think about your prayer life. And then the third thing is think about your habitual sins. So the things that are really, you know, things that has a hold over you, things you struggle with um, to let go of. Where are you giving the devil a foothold and, uh, um, and the, the evil forces an open door to subtly influence you? and to subtly, in a way, um, torment you by your habitual sins and things that you are not laying before the cross of Jesus. And then the fourth one, which I said is probably not a big problem to you, is how's your relationship with the church? Think about that. Um, and I'm saying it tongue-in-the-cheek because many of us, I think, do have, you know, some time in our um, history we might have had beef with the church or someone in the church or something. So think about that. And I'm talking about the church throughout the ages and also the local church here. Because the reason why this is important is, is, is clearly set out in Ephesians 3, where Paul says, through the church, the manifold, the multicolorful wisdom of God uh, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the spiritual beings are learning more and more about the wisdom of God, the, the complete, you know, um, diverse or, or manifold wisdom of God through the church and through what, what God is doing through, through the church. So the fourth thing, think about your relationship with, with the church and your yeah, I mean, like, really in your heart, um, do you still have, you know, do you have to forgive um, someone or, or whatever? Or is there, yeah, something that's there that shouldn't be there? And then the fifth one, easy, you should just not fear. You know, this whole thing about demons and the spiritual realm, it can really be terrifying. Um, and we didn't spend much time now on specific examples of demonic manifestations or so on, which is one of the ways the demons work. We said it's, you know, primarily they really just want to oppose our spiritual growth and corrupt anything good in us, but they also manifest and they also can create or cause really um, scary things, but we really shouldn't fear. Like, that's, that's the first thing, because... Colossians 2 says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, had, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus has been victorious in this battle, um, and that's why we can really go in with confidence if we believe that the demons exist and, you know, call them by what they are. And if we pray, if we are really connected to God in prayer, 
if we fight against our habitual sins, if we gather with the believers and tap into this body, that this body of Christ, then we really do not have to fear. The, um, a helpful image to me is like the, the demonic forces are more like a, a monster that's on a leash on the way to being slaughtered and they know it this monster knows that it's about to die. So on its way, it's just like destroying everything it can and, you know, gaffing and biting and, you know, fighting everything that it possibly, you know, can reach. But it's still on a leash and it's still on its way to be slaughtered. And that's why we really shouldn't fear the demonic. Um, but we should rather enter into this battle with a clear mind and, um, and in prayer. All right, so on that note, I'd like to pray for us. And yeah, you're welcome to think about these things in the week to come. So let's close our eyes. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. And thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for your victory for the battle that you have fought, fought on our behalf and won. Lord, we, we are so grateful to be part of this body, this, this church. And we know that we can fight this war and fight this battle with confidence in your victory and confidence that you will guide us that you will show us what is demonic and what is sinfulness and that you will give us the discernment to deal with each accordingly. Lord, thank you that we don't have to fear. And Lord, I, I truly pray for depth in our thinking about this and that we will yeah that we will think realistically and logically about this and and deal with the the evil forces in that way not in a in a superstitious way or an over emphasized way or anything but really just in a way that we know that they exist and they're real but we also know how to fight this battle and we have the um, the, the weapons to do this. And, yeah, Lord, I pray if there's any of us that is maybe now more, uh, has more unclarity or, yeah, is, is really just not, yeah, not on a good foot with this, this whole topic, Lord, I pray that you will bring cl clarity and truth and that we will always be diligent seekers of the truth and followers of the truth. Yeah, and I pray that as we go into this week that you will show us where we are giving a, a foothold to the devil or where we are not diligent enough in our prayer. And Lord, that we will 
draw near to you in this, knowing that ultimately if we know your Holy Spirit, we will be able to discern all the other spirits. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.